Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, this week we'll be doing our third installment of Africans Against the World. Uh, we will be talking about Tertullian. Uh, if you are interested in Tertullian, if you enjoy this 45-minute uh, session uh, that comes from my uh, from a class that I've been giving at a local church called The Journey, a local here in St. Louis, um, I do have other episodes on Tertullian in the back catalog of our podcast, um, A History of Christian Theology. So if you enjoy this one, uh, please do check out our other episodes on Tertullian. Um, and uh, if you have any other questions about this class or about other ways uh, that you can learn more about these pe people, feel free to message me. Um, I got a really nice message from Keith Justice, uh, who said that these episodes that we've been doing on, called Africans Against the World are a true gem, uh, or jewel, I should say. Um, and he, he appreciates that we are bringing insights into church history that are rarely talked about. So if you have any other comments or questions, um, I sent him some of the um, PDFs of the PowerPoint slides that I've been using, uh, please do feel free to met, uh, email me um, on our Facebook site. So like us on Facebook, um, rate us on iTunes, give us a review, um, and if you feel so led, uh, we also do have a Patreon account, um, which is linked on our Facebook page. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy this episode on Tertullian. Uh, the plan is to record some other new episodes uh, with Tom and Trevor, uh, where we will be doing uh, On the Perpetual Virginity of Mary. Uh, we hope to record that this weekend and uh, get that out for you. So uh, I hope that you enjoy this episode, and we do appreciate you listening and commenting and letting us know uh, what, what you guys think about these uh, episodes. So thank you very much. So this week we read a little bit, or we're going to talk about anyway, uh, whether or not you read, uh, I don't know, um, and I'm not going to ask, um, but uh, yeah, we were talking about Tertullian. Um, so he is Tertullian of Carthage, um, and so far, um, it's, it's a very strange thing about Tertullian. We don't know tons about his life, we know a few things, um, but he wrote more than anyone um, in North Africa to this point. He, we have tons of his writings, uh, but we actually don't know all that much about him. Um, and even stranger, he clearly indicates that there's a Christian community in Carthage, but we don't actually know when it began. Um, so I sort of made mention of this last week with uh, Perpetua and Felicitas, those two uh, women who were martyred. Uh, we don't know exactly when Christianity came to North Africa, and we don't actually even necessarily know um, who taught Tertullian, the things that he knows, um, but he clearly knows them well. He's very familiar with scripture, um, as we will see, um, and he knows the Christian tradition very well. We think that he was born a pagan, um, and so to use, okay, and I'm going to use that word pagan some, just to be clear, it actually comes from the Latin word that means uh, someone from the country, um, but uh, literally, but, but it's used frequently for those that worshipped the Roman pantheon. Um, so polytheists, non-Christians, that's, you know, when we say pagan, that's usually what we mean. That's usually what uh, Christians mean. But um, yeah, it actually originally comes from uh, a, a Latin word for those who are from the country. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, that's what, when we say pagan. So he was raised pagan. Uh, he was raised believing in the Roman pantheon uh, by a 
uh, clearly his father was upper class because he writes well, he's educated. Um, so ancient education, I do a lot of this. This is kind of like one of my focuses uh, for my like own research. Um, but ancient education was basically to become a lawyer. Um, if you were educated in the ancient world, you learned to read the right people, um, and you learned to read the right people so that you could make an argument before a court. Um, and so that was education. You read Homer um, so that you can use Homer as an example when you're defending someone at court, uh, which is, sounds odd, but that was pretty much the focus of all ancient education. And so that's how Tertullian was educated. That's how Augustine was educated. Athanasius, who we'll read next week. Um, yeah, they were learned to read. They, you had to read the right authorities who taught you to speak well um, and taught you the culture. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and that was, so that was how he was educated. Um, and so he's very eloquent, um, and uh, he's, he's, a little, um, he's a little interesting because he gives, a lot of, he gives us a lot of information about what the Christians were like. Um, so in this apology, parts that we didn't read, he'll talk about how Christians gather together. Um, they support one another. He says they voluntarily give, but what they give is to support the poor among them. Um, they talk about um, abortion. Christians have been against ancient forms of abortion since their beginning. Christians would go and rescue. Uh, so uh, there was an ancient practice of abandoning children that were unwanted in the forest or in the hills, and the Christians were known as those who would go gather them um, and raise them as their own. Um, and so Tertullian references this. Um, and he, they call, when the Christians gather together, they would call them an agape feast, which is the Greek word for love. And we're going to see that the Romans were very confused about this, um, why they were having these love feasts. Uh, but Tertullian, and, and it sounds sort of like they're doing something sort of like, um, sorry that this is crude, but an, an orgy. Like they were all getting together and having sex with one another. Um, and he clearly indicates that they are not um, doing that. That is a lie. Um, but that's what a people who didn't know what was going on, that was what they would say to give a reason for persecuting them. Um, so we learn a lot about these communities uh, just from Tertullian. Uh, but yeah, so he, he's an interesting, uh, interesting guy. Um, and... Uh, yeah, but we don't exactly know where, where the, why he was the first one writing. Um, uh, so there you go. Um, I'm going to give you some dates here again, just so we know where we're talking about. Um, so we've got the resurrection of Christ. Um, Tertullian is contemporaneous with Perpetua and Felicitas. Um, so he actually shows that he knows them. Um, he will talk about women who are suffering for the faith, um, and, and that's presumably who he, he means, uh, Perpetua and Felicitas. Um, it seems very likely, uh, given how educated he was and how important he seems to be to the Christian community, that he would have known them, uh, but we don't know 100% for sure. Uh, but um, So... We're talk, Tertullian is born in 155, about 100 years after Christ's death. Um, the, the Apology, the main first work that we read, was written um, about the time of the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. So again, about that same time, um, about 170 years after Christ dies. Um, and uh, as we said before, the apostle to Africa was Mark. So we think Mark has something to do with the founding of the community at Carthage. We just don't know how or why. Um, but that is how the gospel, th that and, and there are some other references uh, that Carly brought up. There are some, uh, Philip the Ethiopian eunuch and some others who bring it maybe to further south in Africa. But how it got this far west um, is still something of a mystery. 
Um, let's see. I have a no. Didn't didn't get in there right. Okay. Oops. So this is our map. Just again to reference where we're talking about Carthage um, is right here, kind of on the this little. Um, I don't know, islet, is that what you call that? Uh, that sticks out into the water there, uh, peninsula something, just across the way from uh, Sicilia. Uh, the Romans uh, took control over Africa, um, actually, or from this area of Africa, the Romans took control of it about 400 years before Tertullian. Um, but North African culture is a mix of Roman culture um, and actually Phoenician culture. I, I think I mentioned this last week, that they have some connections to um, the, the Baal worshippers in your Old Testament. Um, and so they brought their god over here. Hani Baal is a gift of Baal, um, and that's what his name means. Uh, so anyway, they brought their religion over here. So it's, it does appear that there was child sacrifice. Uh, Baal required child sacrifice. That happened in North Africa. Um, and some of those traditions still existed in the time of Tertullian. So he would have been aware of, he seems to be aware of Judaism, uh, sort of Roman polytheism, um, and uh, the, the Baal worshipping. So those would have been the kind of religious culture, you could say, of North Africa. Uh, but he converts to Christianity. Um, he has a wife. Um, he writes to his wife, but he doesn't say all that much other than, I love you and this is what it means to be a Christian. He's writing a lot about what it means to be a Christian um, and nothing personal. Um, so I, I told someone last week that if they were going to read something from early Christianity, they should read the Confessions. Um, and I say that for many reasons, but one of them is it's just the most interesting uh, because it's actually, we get to know something about Augustine's life and about how he feels and what he's worried about and uh, who his parents were. And, you know, he's got this, like, love-hate relationship with his dad and his mother. And um, he loses a friend, which uh, was really um, influential in my life. Um, and when I read that, and you know, he's just way, he's just way c closer to us um, than some of these people that we're reading. Um, and that is because uh, Augustine is the most influential theologian um, of the early church and of Christian, uh, the Western Christianity. Um, and so, you know, his ideas shaped how we think more than anyone else. Um, and uh, I mean. This is something that kind of academics say, but um, if all philosophy is a reference to Plato, like all, all people who do philosophy end up thinking about Plato, all people who do theology end up talking about Augustine. Um, and so, uh, but anyway, but uh, Augustine knew Tertullian, um, so Tertullian was influential still in the time of Augustine, about 200 years later. Um, yeah, so he, and he's just the fountainhead. Tertullian um, sets up a lot of how Christianity is practiced in Africa. Um, he's very influential. Um, women seem to be an important part of his church. It appears that they let, uh, like women had uh, some visions in his church. Um, and that was part of how they, when they would gather together, they would let, uh, let people speak. Sort of, you can imagine speaking in tongues. Um, we think that something like that was going on in Tertullian's church. Um, so he's sort of interesting. It's a very, um, his services sound like they're a little less structured uh, than ours are. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's sort of an interesting, he's an interesting guy. Um, and, uh, and why we're reading him for our class, so we're, we're saying, we call this uh, uh, Africans Against the World. So we're reading his apology. Um, and this, uh, th what we read today was his 
letter to a Roman, um, the, the proconsul, the guy who controlled all of this area, um, Tertullian's writing him a letter and saying, hey, stop killing us. Uh, we're not bad for the empire. Um, and we don't actually know uh, if the proconsul received it, how he received it, but Tertullian, as a lawyer, is giving his apology. So what does an apology mean? Well, apology in English can either mean like saying I'm sorry. Um, sometimes you'll hear people talk about apologetics, and what they mean is um, defending your faith against someone who's an atheist or who doesn't agree with you. But what Tertullian is writing is actually literally a legal defense. Um, That is like before before the governor, he's saying, these are the reasons why you should not kill us in a more legal sense. Um, So it's not an apology to try to persuade someone to believe, although he would be happy if that happened. Um, His primary objective was just to say, please, 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 we pray for you. Um, We're good people. Stop killing us. Um, And uh, it falls on deaf ears, um, as far as we can tell, because the persecutions only get worse um, after Tertullian. But but that's, uh, that's his sort of place in history is an apologist. Um, so that's, that's his, that's his way of showing his resolve, his defense of his faith. He's, uh, he says, you know, um, you, uh, this is what we believe. This is what, these are the kinds of things that we do. And this is why we're not worthy of being killed. Um, and, and so that's how he's trying to stand up for his faith. He also interestingly says, uh, that Christians do not retaliate. He talks about how they, all they do is try to save life, never take life. Um, and these sorts of things, trying to, again, show we are good for your community. Um, and we will suffer persecution if we have to, because um, he, he'll quote Jesus who says in Matthew 5, uh, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name, right? And so Tertullian says, we'll take the persecution if we have to. Our Lord already said that we were going to suffer this, and it won't stop us. Um, we are, we're fully prepared for this. Uh, but you should also know uh, that if you don't have to, you probably shouldn't. Uh, but, but we will take it if we have to because we know who our God is. Um, all right, I'm going to uh, stop there for a moment. Are there any questions about what I've said so far? So if, I don't know if you're going to get into sort of the specifics of some of it. He sort of addresses some of the things that they get falsely accused of. Uh-huh. And one of them has to do with the babies. Yeah. It seems like a sort of a strange contrast that they get accused of doing bad things to babies, but in fact what they're doing is sort of saving them. Yep. How, do, how does that work? Yeah. Um, good question. So the rite of baptism, um, we say um, you die to Christ and you rose again to new life. Um, so sometimes they would take that very act of calling, saying that we kill our babies because uh, dying to Christ. Sometimes they would hear things like that and say, um, you know, that was them trying to hurt babies. Um, also, at the, um, at the communion, uh, we say, this is my body broken for you, shed for you. So it appears that some of the Romans might have heard some of those words and thought that they were killing someone. Um, when they go to rescue these babies, they want to know why are they rescuing these babies. Surely they must be doing something evil um, because there'd be no other reason why someone would do this. Um, and we already know that they eat flesh and blood. We know that they um, put babies to death in the baptismal font. Um, and so actually, 
at that point, they probably wouldn't have been baptizing babies, but young people, let's say. Um, and so they, so they just co- like conflated that um, and said, this must be what they're actually doing with them. Yeah, so these were kind of the rumors we hear, and they wanted to believe bad things about them, so they took those rumors and sort of structured them into the crimes. That's right. So one other thing, we talked about the catechumenate last week. Um, so a catechumen was one who was preparing uh, to make their confession that they believed and swore allegiance to Christianity, and then they would be baptized. So that, that that's, you know sort of membership, if you want to uh, relate it to something like what we do. Um, and uh, at the, um, or, well, when you were catechumen, you were not allowed into the church for communion or for baptism. That was only for baptized Christians. Um, so actually they would ask all um, non-baptized uh, believers to leave. Um, and so, so I think part of the, like, they, the Romans were a little worried. Well, what are you guys doing when you tell everybody to go? Um, and Tertullian says, I promise we're not doing anything untoward, but this is for those of us who are part of our family. Um, so he'll use a lot of familial language. Uh, but that, so that also created some sort of, like, unease amongst the Romans. Um, Tertullian points out uh, in one of our part of our readings, uh, he talks about the illusion mysteries. I don't know if you heard that phrase that's a little probably uh, maybe unfamiliar, uh, but um, the that was so there, uh, part of what Tertullian says is, look, I know you guys do some of this stuff. So um, this would be in your uh, in your reading 76 and 77, uh, chapter seven. Um, uh, let's see. So, rather, who could have been the traitors? So, that is, who is telling on us to the Roman authorities? Certainly not the accused themselves, since the obligation of pledge silence is binding upon all mysteries by their very nature. The mysteries of Samothrace and Lucius are shrouded in silence. How much more such rites are these, which, if they were made public, would provoke at once the hatred of all mankind, while God's wrath is reserved for the future? If, then, Christians themselves are not the betrayers, it follows that the outsiders are. Whence do outsiders get their knowledge, since even holy initiation rites always ban the uninitiated and are wary of witnesses, unless you mean that the wicked are less afraid? So, and then he says, the nature of rumor is well known to all and he quotes uh, Virgil which again shows his uh, education rumor and evil surpassing all evils in speed okay so what is that um, so that this top 77 um, he's saying um, there were other religious um, uh, rites other religious practices um, where people who weren't initiated weren't allowed in so he's saying Look, this is already prominent of, for you guys. A lot of you guys are part of these kind of mysteries, these mystery cults. Um, we're not doing anything different than what a lot of people do in the sense that we don't let you go in unless you're part of our community. Um, and that's, that's all. So he says, and then he says, rumors are so prominent, rumors spread. So let me just tell you that it's all rumor, uh, but we're also you know, just doing what anybody does who, does who performs these sort of strange rituals. Is that? Well, I was just I was just thinking of the contrast or the the, the similarity to today. You know, they, they had these rumors and they manufactured facts from the rumors, and they didn't even have Facebook to do it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, when you think yeah. about it, it's the same thing we do today. Somebody somebody who we don't like says something. We take it out of context, manufacture things around it, post it and repost it, and it changes. And we use that to accuse people of things right. um, all over the place, all the time today, from all different perspectives. Yeah, 
Yeah, I thought of Facebook. I'd never heard this quote before, but rumor and evil yeah. surpassing all evils in speed. I mean, I'm thinking, can you imagine if Facebook had existed back then? I mean, how, how would you have described it? At the, I mean, what could, I mean, I, I just can't imagine like rumors traveling that fast back then when they didn't have Facebook. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, That's what I was smiling when you yeah. looked at me. Yeah. So what do you smile at? Well, they do that. So. Yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, when was Tertullian in the timeline as re in regards to Augustine? Yeah, so he's about 200 years before. Okay. 150, 200. Yeah. So Augustine was about three, 300 years after Christ? Uh, 300 and, well, he dies literally 400 years after we think Christ died. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's halfway in between Christ and Augustine. Yeah. Yeah. So the first Christians were Baptists, that's what you're saying? Yeah, well... Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then the Presbyterians made up the... Uh, <laughs> to, to not get too polemical, yes. <laughs> uh, 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 um, uh, yeah. So Augustine seems to be the first person that advocates, um, in some cases... Uh, infant baptism, yeah. Um, Tertullian encourages to not do it. That's right. Yeah. So that means that somebody was doing it. Mm -hmm. It's not the Baptist. <laughs> 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 Go ahead. Tertullian. I had another kind of non-secular question. Yeah, that's right. From last week. Okay. Um, kind of since we're talking about... In strange, broad strokes. Well, yeah. no, about yeah. like strange doctrine. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> okay. So in, in Perpetua's account, yep. um, she mm. talks a lot about one of her, like, these kind of dreams mm -hmm. that haunts her, mm -hmm. where she prays constantly for the salvation of her dead brother. Uh -huh. um, do, can you talk a little bit about <laughs> the place for prayer for the dead yeah. um, at that time? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, so, they, I mean, they're, they're de that's definitely a practice yeah. in Roman Catholicism. Yeah, um, it may have come from... I, let me just say, um, I am not speaking in sort of... Um, uh, I don't know, like in the place of like the journey's official position on prayer for the dead. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, um, this is also not necessarily like... <laughs> yeah. um, so there was ancestor kind of worship, you could call it, that was very common. And we think that prayer for even the saints or through the saints probably is an outgrowth of this belief that you could still kind of converse with the dead and pray for them. Yeah. Um, in terms of putting her beliefs in context, um, I'm not aware of Tertullian advocating anything like that. Right. Um, so it might, so we don't even, because we don't have a lot of context for right. where she learned what she did, it's difficult to say. Um, it might, you know, it might be that she, um, I'd have to go back and think about that passage in particular. She wants in her visions, maybe an assurance of things, um, that she doesn't know about. So that's what the visions are supposed to provide. Um, so in those stories, actually, um, there are a couple visions that, that happen um, in, the, in the larger um, narrative. And the visions are um, meant to be linked to Acts 2. Um, your sons will dream dreams and your daughters will have visions. And those were a kind of assurance that God was hearing you. Um, and so not to get too sort of um, mystical, but like, you know, like... Uh, 
I, there, was, there was an experience for me when I lived in France where I felt like God gave me a vision of, of Christ. Um, and so I would spend a lot of time in prayer. And that was very important for me in terms of like I was having questions about whether or not God was real. Um, and there was a sense in which that was very comforting. Now, it's not praying for the dead, um, but it is sort of like God speaking to me in a way that felt more than normal. Right. Um, and so I think what she's looking for is some kind of, uh, this is my best guess, is she's looking for some kind of assurance um, that, that her brother will be in a better place. We know it, uh, at least one of her brothers was also a catechumen, right. um, and so, which is to say like they were before baptism. Um, and this gets into maybe another strange belief, but it seems fairly widespread that sometimes they called it a baptism, or actually in the text they call it a baptism of blood. Um, and so they're sort of like becoming a martyr. If you are dying for your faith, you are sort of, there's like, there's no need to do another baptism. Um, you have, you know, we, we believe you. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're a Christian. Um, but yeah, so maybe she's sort of thinking, I, I don't remember if that's meant to be another brother that she's praying for. A younger brother, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, you know, if you think we, you know, a lot of people think about babies dying mm-hmm. very young yeah. before they can age accountability, whatever you want to talk about. And this was before any sort of theology was very well developed. That's right. Yeah. So she was trying to reconcile in her mind yeah, how did that work. And so she was seeking that out and, you know, you just kind of put yourself in the context of where they were mm-hmm. and how well developed their theology was, which may be good, may be bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah. Didn't mean to leave this kind of whole tangent. I just, I just, no, I just, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, there is a passage about baptism of the dead in First Corinthians yeah. as well. Um, so you know, we could say that maybe they thought it had connected to their reading of Paul, but um, yeah, uh, I don't know that. Um, I could say that later, Augustine gets very uncomfortable with this uh, idea, um, and so he talks a lot about like, yeah, we don't really do that. Um, that's uh, you know, this is up. To, well, but, but he so that's why he develops the like his very strong notion of grace and predestination. He says, look, God knows, um, and God is gracious. Um, so the best that we can do is rely on uh, our trust in the gracious God. Um, so, yeah, um, good question. I like I like hard questions. Um, okay, let's. I just uh, I so I have I brought this in just to give you a sense of how much people hated Christians. So this is an early graffiti from Rome. Um, can anybody tell what this main picture is in the middle there? Just out of curiosity. It is a dude on a cross with a donkey's head. Exactly right. Yeah, and then. Little soldiers got his little skirt. Yeah, some guy with a skirt. Yeah, almost looks like he's got a, a kippa a yarmulke on, but they would have. I don't. That's not the case. But it's got something on the back of his head. Um, and, but and he looks like he's holding his hand up to that uh, creature. So this says um, Alexis uh, or um, Alexander worshiping his deity um, uh, in Greek. Um, very crude, um, and so not not for fifth grader to make fun of his. Yeah, making fun of his friend, who, and they said that um, this is who the Christians are. They worship a donkey on the uh, a man who is a half donkey on the cross. Like he, it was a way to insult them. Like um, their their god is as stupid as an, as you know as a donkey, um, which was also a idiom uh, in in Latin. Um, a, a stupid donkey. Um, yeah, <laughs> a stupid stubborn donkey. So this is this is the kind of thing um, that you might see walking through the streets of Rome or Carthage, Christians 
uh, uh, were that uh, reviled. Um, like we will mock them. You know, again, rumors. Um, clearly, Christians don't worship the head of a donkey on a cross. Um, but again, just talk about like sort of how rumor spreads. Um, yeah, uh, and and often falsified. So pretty pretty rough. Uh, but this is what this is what Christians expected. Um, this is what, like I said, they would read the Beatitudes, um, they would read the New Testament, and they would say, but we already knew this was coming, um, and we, we band together. So at one point, Tertullian talks about their language of family, um, and the, the Romans feel very uncomfortable with this. They're like, how are you family? Because um, many times, like Perpetua, her dad wasn't in the, um, the, that religion. Maybe her, one of her brothers was, maybe not the other one. Why do you keep calling yourselves family? And Tertullian says, we are families by baptism. Um, when you become a Christian, you join a new family. And so they would stick together at all costs. Um, and so it's a very, like, it, it was, a, you know, in many cases, a life or death situation. Um, and the only people that you could trust uh, were other Christians. Um, and this is also what is so threatening. So let's go to um, page 77 on your, uh, on your text there. Uh, it's where it says chapter 10. Um, uh, and it says, the very first line, you do not worship the gods, you say, and you do not offer sacrifice for the emperors. It follows that we do not offer sacrifice for others for the same reason that we do not even for ourselves. It follows immediately from our not worshiping the gods. Consequently, we are considered guilty of sacrilege and treason. This is the chief accusation against us, in fact. This is the whole case. Again, legal defense, right? Um, and it certainly deserves investigation. Unless presumption and justice dictate that, that decision, the one despairing of the truth, the other refusing it. So... You do not worship the other gods. Um, so why were they killing the Christians? Uh, and, and at one point, uh, they're called atheists. Uh, maybe not in this text. Um, but they're called atheists. So why were they called atheists? Because they rejected the Roman pantheon. Um, so it, it's as good as if they don't even believe in gods. Now, why is this such a big idea? Um, so we have, in the modern 21st century, a separation between public and private. Um, so we say things like, well, you have your own private religion, right? Um, and we have the freedom of uh, free exercise of religion, which is supposed to be something like um, what you do in private is your own business with your own uh, deities and your own little communities. But when it comes to the government, um, you leave that out. Um, or at least we're not going to have one church for this whole land. Um, the Romans had the opposite view, and in fact, there was no separation. There is no public and private. Um, what you do in private matters for what happens in public and vice versa. Um, so you might say that there's no such thing as religion um, because religion and politics and culture were all the same. Um, it was, you know, so what the Romans believed was you had to offer sacrifice to the emperor or you were going to bring down our whole culture. Um, because that because that deity would get angry at us for not keeping our people in line, um, and our people have to worship our gods to be a part of our community, or else our gods will be angry. Um, and so the the word religion um, means to bind. Um, and so what religion does is it binds people together. Um, and so the, like the, the non-Christian, the pagans, believed that their worship of the deities bound them all together as one group. 
um, and made them all acceptable to their God when the sacrifices were offered. Um, so when you say, I'm not going to offer sacrifice to that emperor, you are breaking yourself off from their whole understanding of how the world works. Um, and when you say your family is not blood, but it's the waters of baptism, um, you are saying we are creating a whole separate society that doesn't recognize what you take to be important. Um, we're, not, we're not about your ways of marrying. We're not about your ways of worshiping gods. We're not about your ways of killing your enemies. We reject all of that, and we're recreating ourselves into the family of God. Um, and so it's this radical rejection of everything. So they said, well, you have to be killed um, because you're going to get us in trouble with our gods um, and you are creating such disturbance, like literally treason, right? I mean, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, and that was, I mean, that was it. Like it was the highest offense that you could uh, commit against their ordering of society. So I'll stop there for a second. I mean, you can see the carryovers of like how, like in the modern day, you know, we've sort of assumed that most, like most people, when you ask them, are they Christian? They're just sort of, yeah, by default, right? Christianity is the default religion um, in the United States. That's changing. We got nuns and some other things. But for a long time, that was just a default. Um, and we were surprised when somebody wasn't maybe. Um, and it's the complete opposite for them. Um, and they're trying to figure out who these weirdos are, why they don't go to church, and what they're doing in that weird little place um, that's literally breaking apart our society. Yeah? Why do we think Tertullian was able to not be killed? Because, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it might have to do with his status. Three more years-ish, and he said all of this, and they're killing people who just say it, not write it down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, the only, it's a great question. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> um, it may be because of his status. His father may have been able to protect him better than Perpetua's father because we know that he was educated. We know that he was wealthy. Uh, there was not – so up until um, 250, uh, which is the next great persecution, uh, it was persecution uh, – they, they would kill Christians um, only upon report. Um, and it wasn't like a policy that all Christians that we could find we need to kill. Um, so it was the default was, well, maybe just let them be until we actually have to deal with them. So maybe Tertullian did enough um, to not get reported. But we, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. So the best we can say is um, he actually speaks, um, oddly enough, he speaks highly of Septimus Severus, who the emperor was. Um, and it may be that he did that. Um, sort of judiciously and politically to spare himself as a leader of the church who felt like he needed to be there. Um, but we don't, we don't really know. Um, so yeah, so the same emperor who uh, was the one who oversaw the killing of Perpetua and Felicitas, at points, uh, Tertullian will say, uh, at least say, like, we appreciate that he hasn't killed all of us. Um, <laughs> yeah. And on that point, I mean, it is a great question, but I don't think we can discount the grace of God. Right. Well, yeah. that, you know, that's um, understood. Yeah. Well, but I think it needs to be. No, maybe, maybe it is understood, but I mean, I think God is clearly at work, and and not that He couldn't have been at work through Perpetua, but, um, you know, you just think of how different our Christian faith would be today had He not survived, and I mean, it's not different than some of the apostles and and some of the things they went through, so. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, to me, that, that's sort of the answer probably to this. I mean, because it seemed sort of obvious, like, why was this guy not persecuted and killed like the rest of them? But yeah. to me, the best explanation for that is just by the grace of God. Yeah.
Good point. Yeah. Um, and and I, th I think I might have said this, but I will reiterate it. The, the martyrs did not seek martyrdom. If they received it, they would receive it, um, but they would not go out looking for it. Um, and this actually, so this whole question of which people get killed and don't get killed um, will, play an effect, uh, will play a role in North African theology for the next couple hundred years because um, there were some who would, try, who would fake a confession um, to the emperor, like that they, would, that they believed in the emperor as God or they might offer sacrifice or they might offer over, uh, like oftentimes they asked them for the scriptural text and some of the Christians would like would try to avoid being killed and so they would just do whatever was asked of them and then they wanted to be let back into the church and then the church was trying to figure out okay now what do we do so you've sworn allegiance to the emperor but you are already a christian and now you want to come back and they start this this becomes a big debate what what do we do in these hard cases um so so clearly there were some christians who were killed some who weren't it's hard to say why um but but that is a that becomes difficult because some of them are very upset you know say if you're family member dies and like hey we didn't you know uh we we didn't just uh abandon our uh, our faith um for political expediency um but um but you did and so there's there's some you know hard feelings about this um yeah one other one other thing i thought was interesting when you're talking about the roman pantheon the many gods if if the christians had just sort of gone along with one more God, because yep. I think they tried to say, hey, why don't you just, yeah, line your God up and we'll all worship him, and that's really cool, as long as you pay homage to Caesar or whoever, then you guys can hang around and be fine. Yep. And it was, no, there's one God, and there aren't these other ones, and no, we won't offer sacrifice to Caesar. That was kind of the... The most thing, the biggest thing they're guilty of. Oh, he's yeah. so sassy. I like, guess yeah. he's worshiping your gods when we find out they're non existent. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, let's go in there. Yep. <laughs> he wanted to prove that, I guess, right? Sort of? Yeah, that's right. Well, he was arguing that that's yeah. what we should be allowed. That, right, that is really have that the discussion. central yeah. issue uh, that we should be allowed to argue in our defense. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, if we can prove. Don't exist, that they don't exist, and there's no basis to compel us to worship them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all well said. Um, I'm just going to switch. Uh, we got about a few minutes left. Um, so uh, Tertullian does a few things. Um, he says uh, at the end in chapter 50, we get this line um, uh, on page 82. Uh, yet your tortures accomplish nothing, though each is more refined than the last. Rather, they are an enticement to our religion. We become more numerous every time we are hewn down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. Um, so that, that becomes the line that I quoted. Uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, so he basically says, you can try to keep killing us, but this, is ju this just reinforces all the more how hateful your society is um, to us. Um, and we will keep, this will not stop us. Um, and yeah, that, that becomes a very important line um, in um, Tertullian's thought. The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, I wanted to switch uh, for a moment to some of the other things uh, that Tertullian talks about. So if you go to... Um, oh, wait, here, I can just go down. There we go. Um, bu -bu -bu -bum. I wanted to talk about the rule of faith. Um, so if you go to page, uh, what's 213, I think it's uh, number five in, the, uh, in your printout. 
Um, so Tertullian says this thing that becomes really important. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit with Athanasius next week as well. Um, so he says, part 13, the rule of faith to state here and now what we maintain. So this is, um, so uh, the other thing that Tertullian wrote a lot about was um, a defense against heretics or against those Christians who, or not Christians, those who, um, dis- like, who didn't understand Christianity and those who had like, basically um, false notions of who God was. Um, actually, in, on part six, uh, so the words orthodoxy and heresy are going to come up a lot um, in the next two weeks as we talk about Athanasius um, and about Tertullian. So just to be uh, clear, the, wor- the Greek word for heresy um, is the word, so he says here, um, uh, this is a Greek word meaning cho- choice, the choice which anyone exercises when he teaches heresy or adopts it. That is why he calls a heretic self-condemned. He chooses for himself the cause of his condemnations. We Christians are forbidden to introduce anything on our own authority or to choose what someone else introduces on his own authority. Um, So what is heresy? Heresy is what you choose, what you devise of your own making. Um, And so orthodoxy means right thinking. Um, That's like literally uh, what, what the Greek word means. And so for Tertullian, he says, there just is the Christian faith. Um, and it is what was handed down by Jesus to the apostles, um, which is recorded in Scripture. So we were going to talk about a little bit about his idea of the Trinity, um, but suffice it to say that um, he quotes tons of Scripture. So he knows the Scripture front and back, um, and he says, what we believe as Christians is consistent um, and has come down to us um, through baptism from Christ's teaching. And he says, you don't just get to choose and make this up on your own. Um, this is what Christians believe. This is the truth. Um, and it's not up to you. Um, and so there's this notion um, it, that's really important in, in early theology of you submit to the authority of Christ um, and Christ's teaching. Right? Um, it is not up to you. Um, you have to receive it as what it is, um, and that is orthodoxy. Um, but it is not up to you to create it on your own. Does that make sense? Um, and so, th- so he says the, the rule of faith, so that phrase is, is very important for early Christians, um, and it's where we get our word canon, which is also sometimes how we describe the Bible, um, and the rule of faith, sa- he says, to state here and now what we maintain is, of course, that by which we believe there is but one God, who is none other than creator of the world, right, so we think of the Apostles' Creed, uh, the first line, um, uh, who produced everything from nothing through his word, sent forth all things. That his word is called his son, second person of the Trinity. Um, and in the name of God was seen in diverse ways by the patriarchs, the Old Testament, was ever heard in the prophets, Old Testament, and finally was brought down by the spirit and the power of God the Father into the Virgin Mary, second part of the Apostles' Creed, was made flesh in a room, was born of her, and lived as Jesus Christ, who thereafter proclaimed a new law and a new promise of the kingdom of heaven, worked miracles, was crucified, on the third day rose again, this lines are right out of the Apostles' Creed basically, was caught up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, uh, then he sent to displace the Holy Spirit, the third part of the, tr- of the creed, um, and he sent in his place the power of the Holy Spirit to guide believers, uh, that he will come with glory to take, up, to take the saints up into the fruition of the eternal life and the heavenly promises and to judge the wicked, 
to everlasting fire after the resurrection of both good and evil. Um, this rule taught by Christ allows no questions among us except those which heresies introduce and which make, uh, which make heretics. To know nothing against the rule is to know everything. Um, so, the, you know, we could say that this rule of faith goes back to what Christ says in Matthew 28. Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Like, and, and Paul will say, has some similar lines in um, 1 Corinthians 15 as well, um, as about Christ died and was resurrected. These things are, um, uh, sometimes the ancients would say, in nuce, in nut form, um, and that was handed on uh, to each generation. So although the, we're going to talk about this next week, but although the Bible, um, you know, uh, doesn't exist in the way that we have it, you know, 66 books that everyone has in their hands, the same teaching and even the, un- and the understanding of those truths um, was taught from the beginning. Um, so the question of when does the Bible uh, become the Bible, some people think because of Dan Brown that uh, it happened at the Council of Nicaea or that it happened at the end of the 4th century. From very early on, every Christian community had an agreement about the basic principles. Look, we have a creator God. He spoke through the Old Testament prophets. He became born of the Virgin Mary, um, and he will come again to uh, bring forgi- or brings forgiveness of sins in his death, and he will come again uh, to judge the quick and the dead. He's saying this basic confession of faith has existed from the beginning and does not change. Um, and so when people have these debates about where the Bible comes from, they tend to look for like a date where they can see, oh, look, all 66 books, which I will show you, uh, the first one of those next week. But the idea goes back all the way to the beginning. Um, and those people who confessed this faith were united as one community, literally from uh, Christ, what he handed on to his apostles. Yeah? So you mentioned that. Uh, Ptolemy is, is saying a lot of the same things that the Nicene Creed says. Uh, did the Nicene Creed come from Ptolemy or did Ptolemy... Is, sorry, to Ptolemy. Is Ptolemy referencing the, the good question. Creed or is the Creed referencing to Ptolemy? Yeah, so good question. So the Creed uh, is finalized in 381, um, all 180 years after this text was written. Um, so the form, the, the basic shape of, of the confession that becomes the creed um, was already being talked about among early Christians. That's kind of my point, um, is that although people will say, like, like, so there are people who disagree with Christianity, who sort of seek to undermine it, and they will say Constantine created the Nicene Creed and made Christians believe it. What I'm trying to show as we go along is, one, Christians already had a fair amount of agreement on what the, the Bible was, what it taught, um, and what this creed was. And they, they've been trying to defend it from the beginning um, against those who would seek to change it. Um, so it's not that Constantine creates it. Um, it's that those bishops who gather in this, in this time, this later time, um, recognize what was already being taught. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, we are out of time. Um, yeah. There, there's just there's so much good um, in Tertullian. I mean, uh, he... I wanted, like I said, I, want to introduce, I wanted to introduce to you some of these uh, sort of interesting points about, 
about what he talked about. Blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How important the community was holding these people together against intense persecution. Um, next week, we're going to read from Athanasius. We're going to skip forward um, quite a bit. We're going to talk a little bit more about where does the Bible come from. Um, but hopefully you've seen a little bit that even in Perpetua and Felicitas, even in Tertullian, they're already... Basic, there's already basic agreement about what Christians believe and where it comes from, from Christ through the scriptures. Um, so it's not this late invention, um, as some people would like to say. Um, but yeah, Athena- so uh, I will uh, email you and uh, give you what uh, I think would be good for you to look at from Athanasius. Um, and as always, I probably will give more than I can ever get to. Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. This has been another week of Africans Against the World, a class that I, Chad Kim, am doing at a local church here in St. Louis. Uh, If you would like to have someone, uh, you know, if you'd like to have any more conversation with me about these topics, please do message us on our Facebook page. Thank you, and have a good week.